Well, good morning, church. How y'all doing today? I'm going to start with a question. I'm going to put a picture on the screen, and you got to tell me what you see. How many of you see a old woman? How many see a young woman? Yeah. Now, I want you to do something. If you see a young woman, I want you to take a look at her chin and think of a nose. And take a look at her ear and think of an eye. Do you see it? You see the change? And those of you that see an old woman, take a look at her nose and think about a cheek that's turned away from you and her eye and think of an ear. You see the difference? You see, you look at that picture and it's like, which one do I see? Is it a young woman that looks like a model from France or is it an old woman? Actually, I show this picture because this really perfectly pictures what Ephesians 5 is like. When you read Ephesians chapter 5, where we'll be this morning, if you have your Bibles turned there, you're reading, you're going back and forth. Is this talking about a husband and wife? Or is this talking about Jesus and the church? And I found myself as I was studying for this series, I had to be intentional with some of you to see the other one because all right, I'm looking at it one way, and I go, wait a minute, now I, I, I got to look right here. This is about Jesus in the church, and so I read it again with that, and my head to be very intentional, go back and forth. So the question is, which, which is this about? Is this one of those pictures that can go either way? Is this a picture about the marriage between a husband and a wife, which Jesus in the church illustrates? Or is this a picture about Jesus and the church and the marriage is really secondary to picture that? That's the question we have to ask ourselves as we go to this passage. And actually he answers that question for us in verses 32 and 33. So take a look at that if you would. He says this, the mystery, this mystery is great but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. The mystery he tells us in verse 32 that he's speaking about is really the mystery about Jesus and the church and their relationship together. It's not really just about the end of verse 31 about the two becoming one, but it's really about, in a sense, the marriage relationship between Jesus and the church. And we know that it's talking about the whole passage because of the word nevertheless. He ties that together. That's a conjunction that puts the two verses together. And when we look at verse 33, he says, nevertheless, in spite of this, even so, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. That's what he talked about in verse 25 through 29. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband, verses 22 through 24. So this whole passage 
is talking about Jesus and the church and Jesus' love for the church and how the church is to respect him by responding and submitting to everything he says. That's what this passage is about. We can learn lessons about marriage from the relationship about Jesus and the church. It's not that we learn lessons about Jesus and the church from the marriage. And so this morning, I want you to know this, this passage is for the whole church. I know I've been doing a series about husbands and wives, but when we take a look at this passage in the way it's intended to be, it's a message not just for husbands and wives, it's, it's a message for the church of Jesus Christ that tells us about the way that Jesus loves us as his bride and the way that we are to respond to him. That's what this passage is about. So it's a message that's for everybody. And so what I want to do this morning is really focus upon Jesus' love for the church. His love for the believers in Jesus Christ. We've talked a lot. We sing a lot about submitting to the Lord and responding to him with respect. I just, I just felt led this morning to focus a little bit more about Jesus' love for us and take a look at that. So let's take a look at it first in the passage. We see in verse 25 that it's a sacrificial love. Husbands, Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. A sacrificial love where Jesus for the church gave himself up. He died on the cross to pay for our sins so that we might have new life and eternal life. And so Jesus' love starts with him his sacrificing of himself and then we see it's a sanctifying love in verses 26 and 27. He tells us he gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. Sanctify means to purify, uh, to make full and whole, removing all the spots and wrinkles and make them fully ready. And what we see here is that Jesus' love is much like a bridal attendant getting the bride ready for the presentation. In this sense, it's really unique because Jesus is the bridal attendant getting his bride ready for the time when the bride is presented to him in the future. So it's a love that is working to bring the best out of his bride, to remove all the things that hinder us and tie us up and trip us up and steal freedom and joy from us. And he's making us that full, radiant bride ready to see Jesus. So look at this in verse 26 and 27. He ends in verse 25, he gave himself up for her so that, here's the reason, he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Come back next week. I'm going to talk about that, those very verses in regards to us as husbands and how God wants our love to be towards our wives. But this is what Jesus is doing for us. 
And then there's a third kind of love, verses 28 through 30. And I just call that practical, up, close, and personal love. He uses the body to illustrate this principle. So watch for that in verses 28. He says, so husband ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh or his own body, but he nourishes and cherishes it. In other words, if you're hungry, what do you do? You feed your body, right? If it itches, you scratch it. If you get a cut, you take care of it. There's gentle, personal, up-close, practical care of the needs that are there. And what he's saying here is, is that this is the way that not only a husband is to love his wife, but look at this, verse 29, just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. So Jesus' love for you and me is a sacrificial love where he lays down his life to pay the penalty for our sin so that we might have new life in Christ. And then it's a purifying love where once we've come to know him, his work hasn't stopped. His love keeps on working in us and his love is working in us to make us the best possible version of who we've been created to be as he removes all those spots and wrinkles and any such thing from our lives to make us ready for that time when we'll be presented before Jesus. And it's a practical, personal love where Jesus meets our everyday needs. On one hand, it's what we just saw with the sanctifying love that has the future in mind as he's preparing us for that presentation to himself in the future. But in the present, whatever needs you might have in a personal, practical way in life, Jesus takes care of them because we are members of his body. And so this is the kind of love that Jesus has for us. It's a powerful love. It's a transforming love. And there's many in this room that have been touched by that. If you were here on Easter, you heard my story. And you know how God grabbed me out of the pits of all the foolishness and bad choices that I made that just really was destroying my own life and how God pulled me out of that and brought me into a relationship with himself and in his love he's been working and he's still working because I messed things up so bad it's gonna take until I stand before Jesus to keep working on this vessel to clean up the messes that I made in my own life because of my own poor choices with sin. And that's what God, and I'll tell you what, by the way, I know others in here personally can stand up and say, that's my story. <laughs> that's my story. I'm not the only one. I'm not unique here. This, this room is filled with people who Jesus' love has touched them and grabbed them out of a life of emptiness and foolishness and sin and just destruction and pulled them and put them on the street to walking with him and working in their life. And I want to give those of you who didn't come out of that kind of life even a word of encouragement because my wife kind of grew up in the church just like my two granddaughters here today. Uh, learning about Jesus as kids, uh, she came to trust Jesus actually through a children's program here, I guess, when they had a missionary here. And you know what? I, you know, sometimes Kim says, I feel like I don't have that testimony like yours, Pat. I say, oh, you got a better one, Kimmy, because you know what? 
God was able to keep you from all the junk that's out there to destroy you that I got into and that others got into. So you might be, I mean, I don't have that great testimony of coming out of there. Well, you know what? You got even a greater testimony to live in a world like this. If Jesus can keep you as a child walking in this world with all the temptation and the pressure coming your way from being destroyed by it, that's an unbelievable gift and testimony of God's grace. And so I want to tell you something. Those of us that know Jesus, God's love has reached into our life and he's still working on us. He hasn't quit. He's going to continue to love us. I heard somebody say once this way, God loves us just the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us just the way we are. <laughs> you see, God's love for you is so great that if nothing changed in your life, he would love you fully and it wouldn't impact his love at all for you. But he loves you too much to leave you just as you are because he knows the damage that some of the things that are still in our flesh that are, are hampering us, so he continues to work in us to transform us, to make us more like Jesus. I want you to turn to Ezekiel 16. As I read this passage, I mean, this so pictures Ephesians chapter five. I was amazed as I read that. And you can see it for yourself in Ezekiel chapter 16. I'm gonna start in verse four. He's speaking to Jerusalem, but obviously he's speaking to the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel. He's using Jerusalem as a figure of speech here uh, for the people of Israel. And what we're going to see here in this passage before we read it, we're going to see God's love for Israel when nobody else wanted them, when they were unwanted and unlovely. And I know there's people that feel like that. I know there's people that feel that nobody wants me and matter of fact, the way I've messed up my life, I'm unlovable anyhow. I want you to know that doesn't hinder God at all <laughs> from pouring his love on you. And we're gonna see that. And then we're gonna see as God poured his love on them, he continued to work on them as he saved them out of that state where nobody wanted them. He began to pour his love on them and really made them the beauty of the earth. So watch for that as I read this in Ezekiel. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of Ephesians 5. And as I read this, men, let this be a um, seed for next week. This is what our love for our wives is supposed to do to them. This is the way we're supposed to love our wives. And as we see the picture of God loving Israel, the same picture of Jesus loving the church, this is the kind of love that we're supposed to have for our wives, and we can see the power that this kind of love can have on your wife in helping her become all the woman God's created her to be. So listen, starting in verse 4 of Ezekiel 16. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut. Nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in clothes. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field 
for you were abhorred on the day you were born. See, that was a practice back then. Infant side, if they didn't want the child for some reason, they would take the child out in the field and just throw him out there to leave him to die. And that's what God is saying. This is the picture of Israel. Nobody had mercy on you. Nobody loved you. Nobody gave you the things they normally give to a newborn child. Matter of fact, they threw you out in the field ready for you to die. Then in verse 6, when I passed by you, this is God speaking, and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like the plants of the field. Then you grew up, became tall, and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed, and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. Old enough to get married. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. Now, if Pastor Clem was here, he'd tell you about the book of Ruth. Remember when Boaz spread his covering over Ruth as she was at his feet? That's the picture that was used in the, in the ancient times as a means of betrothal. This is the way they got engaged back then. I'm going to cover you and protect you and make you my own. This was a promise to marry them. And so God says, here you were. You were at the time of love, you were naked, so I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into covenant with you so that you became mine. God married Israel, and you became mine. We learned about the covenant, the two becoming one. I'm yours, yours, you're mine, and and all the other things that go for that, living for that one, and so forth and so on. God made a covenant with Israel that became mine. Then listen to what God did. Then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. And I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments. Put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostrils, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil. So look at where they came. So you were exceedingly beautiful and advance to royalty. Doesn't this sound like Ephesians 5? I mean, here God came and he saved us first of all. Now he's working in us to remove every spot and wrinkle to make us that place where we're ready to stand before him. And, and he made Israel with his love exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Let me just say this again. Whether you're a parent, whether you're just a friend, whether you're a husband, your love can transform somebody's life, just like God's love transformed our lives. Then he says this in 14. Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty. 
Everybody noticed, wow, look at the way this nation has become. Look at what happened to them. Your fame went forth among the nations and account of your beauty for it was perfect. Your beauty was perfect. Because of, why was her beauty perfect? Because of my splendor, which I bestowed upon you, declares the Lord. This is a wonderful, amazing picture of the transforming power of love. As God put it on Israel, but as we as husbands that are putting it on our wives, or we as parents put it on our children, or we as just friends put it upon our friends. It's amazing love. Now, I won't go into this, because you read the rest of the chapter, guess what happened? Look at verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty, and you played the harlot. And the passage goes on, and I won't get into all that, but Israel, as you know, they took all these wonderful gifts God gave them, all the blessings, and they just abused them, and they trusted in them, and they gave them away to other gods. And I trust that we won't do the same with the love of God that's been poured upon us, that we won't be like Israel as a harlot, <laughs> taking the very gifts and the ornaments. He says that they were such harlots. He said a normal harlot gets paid for their duties. You guys went and paid your lovers to come with you. I mean, Israel taking the very gifts that God had given to them and made them beautiful, turned around and used them to buy other gods for themselves. So just, again, my point this morning is the transforming love. My encouragement is don't waste that love in your life. Don't waste that love in your life. Don't become like Israel. Do as Ephesians 5 tells us, respond to him in respect, submitting to everything to the Lord. This is the love that God wants to pour on you. Matter of fact, this is the love he's already poured upon you through Jesus at the cross. And this is the love that he wants to continue to pour upon you as a believer in Jesus Christ. And so again, my encouragement to you is, is to open your heart to him and respond to him and allow him to do that. Now, if you're here today or you're watching online and you don't know Jesus, I need to remind you of something. Listen to this passage that we know so well in John 3, 16. And it says this, for God, it doesn't just say for God loved the world, but it says God so loved the world. <laughs> we just read about some of that so love. God so loved the world that he gave. This is what we see in Ephesians 5. He gave himself for us. God gave his only son. He gave him to die to pay the price for my sins. That's why Jesus had to die. Matter of fact, you can't work yourself into a relationship with Jesus. Because what you, when you understand what happens, when a man is separated from God, it takes a sacrifice other than themselves because it has to be a perfect sacrifice without the fact. And it's got to be offered by somebody other than themselves. It has to be a priest. And so I can't do enough religion or enough morality or enough of anything that comes from me to try to be good enough for God. The penalty of sin is death. And why Jesus died is because he loves you and me so much that he was willing to die to pay for my sins and for yours. 
That's why he died, because he so loved you. And God gave his son because he so loved us. And because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, because he's the sinless one as God himself, my sins were placed upon him. He took them to the cross. He shed his blood, because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness to pay for my sins. He was the priest. He was the one who, a priest, by the way, is someone who is a stand between, between God and man, who makes the offerings on behalf of man to God. By the way, we learn in Hebrews, Jesus was the last priest. There aren't any priests anymore. Jesus is our priest. And Jesus, as our priest, offered himself. Jesus was the priest. Jesus was the offering. And he went to the cross. He took my place and your place. He paid for our sins. And all he says is this, that whoever, whoever believes that, and I asked my granddaughters, you guys believe that? I mean, this, uh, you know, I, I didn't try to coach them. I said, you guys speak in your own words. They talked about asking Jesus in their heart. They're relying upon Jesus and believe that Jesus died for them and that Jesus came into them. And, and it's whoever believes, whoever relies, whoever depends, whoever trusts in what Jesus did on the cross and he did it for you. He said, you won't perish, but you have eternal life. And I want to encourage you today, if you're here or you're watching online and you don't have that eternal life, and I want to speak especially to those who feel unlovely, or unwanted because maybe you have got your life into such a ditch and such a hole and such a mess that you think nobody would ever want me. That's just not true. God wants you and he loves you. He loves you so much that he died for you. If there was nobody else on the earth, he still would have done it just for you. I want to encourage you, today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Turn from anything you're trying to do yourself to be good enough and recognize I'll never be good enough and totally embrace Jesus. I love that in the Old Testament. They had to put their hands on the offering so the offering was identified for them. Well, we need to put our hands on the cross <laughs> and identify that Jesus' death was for me. And I put my hands on that cross by admitting, God, I am a sinner and you died for my sins and I believe that and I embrace that. And by faith, I'm calling out whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If I believe that in my heart of hearts and I call upon Jesus, save me, Lord. His promise is he will forgive your sins. He'll come and build his life inside of you and continue to work in you until the day we're with him in eternity. So I just exhort you this morning, if you haven't done that, done that, do that, done that now. Do that now. Talk to me afterwards. Talk to somebody. This is the most important thing. God loves you with an everlasting love that no matter where your life has been, we can always stand up and tell our bigger fish stories about how bad my life was. Doesn't matter. None of those fish are big enough for the love of God. His love is amazing. It's transforming. Now, I want to I have a word this morning for singles. You know, I um, actually, 
I, I recognize that this series has been hard for some singles. Matter of fact, some have told me. And some go, well, what are you talking about? I'm single and I love this series and I've heard that from some singles. And they're, they're excited because they have a hope of someday being married, but there's some singles who've been single long enough, they've given up that hope. There's some who've been divorced that life has really changed for them. There's some who are widows. The one they love for years is gone. And, and you know what? This series has been hard on them. Um, some have told me personally, and I've been aware of that, and I was nervous about that. I, recognizing the need to bring the truth of God about marriage to this church, but knowing there's many singles who are feeling the pain of being single. And I just want to let you know, I recognize your situation is not what you would hope for. It's not what you had dreamed your life would end up as, and it's not what you prayed for. I want you to know I understand that. And my heart feels for you with that. I know it's painful for you. And like I said, for some, the series has been hard for them to hear. And I know you have desires in your heart. You, like everybody else, have a desire for companionship. Because you could tell us better than anybody where the scripture says it's not good for man to be alone. You know better than anybody how much companionship is longed for in the core of your being. And yes, you do have sexual desires as well. Because God has created us as sexual beings that long for that intimacy with somebody else. And I want you to know this. There is nothing wrong or sinful with that long, deeping desire for a companion or even for sexuality. God made us that way. But where sin comes in is depending on how you handle those desires. You follow me? That's a whole nother topic. So it's not sinful to have those desires. It's what you do with those desires, and if you handle them in a way contrary to God's word, where they become sinful and destructive. But I want to give three words of advice. Now, I just want to let you guys know I get it. I get it. Um, I want to give three words of advice for you. The first thing I want to do is this. Reframe your singleness. In other words, look at it in light of God's truth rather than maybe the discouragement of your own heart. Look at it through a new lens. You know, it's kind of like I don't see well with these and I went to go to the eye doctor, just got some new glasses, got a new prescription, I can see better. I got new lenses on. And like I, for, actually for almost a year, I knew people were in the balcony. I didn't know who was up there because I couldn't see. Now I know who some of you are because I could see some faces. I got new lenses. I want to encourage you to see your singleness clearer through God's word. Or maybe it's like this. You need to write a new title to the story of your singleness. You know, you wrote a book and you entitled it, I'm miserable and I'm sad because my dream never came true. Maybe you want to entitle that book, God's goodness and abundance is still true even though you're single. You following me? Guys, we got to reframe the way we look at our singleness and God's goal is still the same for your life, whether you're married or single. His goal is, is to make you more like Jesus. His goal is to make you holy, not happy. As I said earlier in the series, there's some people in marriages where they're not really happy. 
God's even going to use that unhappiness to make us more holy. And the more holy we are, the more happy we'll be because holiness burns away all the junk in our life. And what happens is, is I find greater fulfillment in life and greater peace and joy in the Lord himself. And so God's goal is to make you holy, and he's even going to use your singleness to do that. Whether you're a widow, whether you've been single all your life, whatever your situation is, God's going to use it. And according to 1 Corinthians 7, this might be hard to swallow, but this is what God's truth is. He's trying to keep you from some trouble. (laughs) And he wants to give you some new opportunities. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 7. But if you marry, he's speaking to those who aren't married. If you marry, you haven't sinned. And if a virgin marries somebody who's never been married, uh, if you marry, speaking to those who once were married, and now it's a whole different story. Let me go. I'm not going to go into that because I'll really confuse everybody. But if a virgin marries, she's never been married. She's not sinned yet. Such will have trouble in this life. And I'm trying to spare you. Now listen to what he says here, further on in the same chapter. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord. Now he may please the Lord, but the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world. How he may please his wife and his interests are divided. So here's the reality, guys. When you get married, there are new concerns and new problems you never would have had that you had when you were single. That's just reality. Matter of fact, Kim and I were sitting at breakfast with a single woman speaking about this. She actually gave me some good ideas for today's sermon, but she made me swear that I wouldn't say who she was, even though she's available and a wonderful woman. I said, I I will not tell anybody who you are. But we sat there and we brainstormed. And we we talked about it, because she is a single woman and she's, she's been single a long time. And we started to talk about the kind of life she has and the things she's able to do and the freedom she has and the ways of opportunity and serving the Lord and enjoying life that Kim and I, whose responsibility as married couple and with family and kids don't have the same thing. There are some advantages to being single. There really are. And we need to recognize that. And I'd encourage you to brainstorm. What are some of the, you know, I'll tell you just the simple, I mean, when I went, I take out my family when the kids were still home. I mean, I had to pay for me, Kim, and the three kids. And then if they had boyfriends at that time, they got pretty expensive. And with my single friend, they just throw out a couple bucks for themselves. You know, it gets a little more complicated. It gets a little bit more full as you're married. So that's a good thing. But so is being single. There are some advantages to being single. And I want to encourage you to rewrite, to reframe, rewrite the title of your life, reframe what's going on and recognize that there are some opportunities you have and some entanglements you're not gonna get into because you're single. Second word of advice, you do need companionship. We've all been made for that. But don't get tunnel vision into thinking that marriage is the only way that need for companionship can be met. And that's what happens. People get discouraged. I'm not married, so I'm going to be alone and I can never be happy and I'm always going to feel lonely. That's not the truth. Listen to what, uh, I don't know if I put this on a PowerPoint. I guess I didn't. Listen to what Jesus said. 
Peter began to say, behold, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house. Now this is Mark 10. Luke, the next word that Luke puts in, even though Mark doesn't put it, wife. There's no one who's left house, or wife, or brothers, or sisters, or mothers, or father, or children, or farms. For my sake, and for the gospel's sake, but he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age of houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecution and in the age to come, eternal life. This is what, this is what God is saying. I can provide brothers and sisters for you. I can provide friends for you. I can, as a matter of fact, a hundred times, because you know what, I've got three brothers and a sister, and I love them, but guess what? I got hundreds of brothers and sisters right here in the family of Christ. And, and, and there's relationships that we have that God uses to fill me and to fill you. And we got brothers and sisters that God wants to use. We got, you know, mothers and fathers. There's some of you who say, man, I, and I do know, there's people who come here and trusted Jesus and because they've trusted Jesus, their families rejected them. And guys, we're their new family according to Jesus. We're their brother, we're their sister, we're their mother, we're their father. And this is what God has for singles as well. And some of you are singles saying, you know, because I'm honoring Jesus, I could have went down other tracks and got this need fulfilled, but I'm honoring Jesus and I'm still single. Jesus promised to you. <laughs> He's got other brothers and sisters and those who can fill that need. I'm going to take just a moment. I hope you don't mind this, but this is Pampeglo's theology of friendships. It's a biblical theology of friendships. You know, when I think of friends, I want to encourage you, as you think about friends, I think of a target. We have different levels of friends. On the outer uh, realm are strangers. Then we have acquaintances, people we kind of know. Uh, we got good friends. We have close friends, and then we have those intimate friends. Now, this is true whether you're single or married. And, and let, me just, let me just share this real quick. When it comes to strangers, you should greet them. Because Jesus said, if you greet only your brothers, what more do you do than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So, you know, we should be the friendliest people in the world when we're with strangers. And you know what, that's going to open a lot of doors for the gospel, just because you know what, today people have their head down, nobody talks to them, you just walk, hey, hi, hi, how you doing? Hey, you walk into church, I really don't know you're a stranger to me, but hi, how are you today? That's really what the body of Christ should be like. What about acquaintances? They're not estranged, but I kind of know them. This is what he says in 3 John 15, peace be to you, the friends greet you, greet the friends by name. I encourage you, you know what? When you are, it's time to just say, good morning, Debbie. Hi, Don. Good morning, Emily. You know, by name. You know, we need to start calling each other by name. And you know what? Unless you've blown out your head with drugs and you look at somebody and say, I know I know their name, but I'm forgetting it right now, so I go, good brother or good sister. Just remember, that's some of Pat's drug damage when, when you get that. I know that name. That happened to me just this week. I was like, hold on, give me a second here, Lord. 
me get this back. Good friends. What did Jesus say about good friends? No longer do I call you slaves, for a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all things that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. What does a friend do? Now a friend starts to reveal something about what's below the surface to the people around them. They start to share some of their stuff that just acquaintances and strangers don't hear. They get, a friend starts to learn a little bit more about your life. But then there's close friends. And what did Jesus say this? Here, John 15, 15. No, no, that's not it. John 15, 13, greater love has no one this that one lay down his life for his friends. So what happens with a close friend? <coughs> Excuse me. Starts to cost me a little bit. I'm willing to take some time to be with them. I'm willing to move some other things out of my schedule so I can spend time with this person. I'm willing to spend money to go do this event so I can have time with this person. And so when you become close friends, there's more revelation. You know, a good friend, they start to get some of you. A close friend starts to get more of you and they know more about you than what other people know. And I'm willing to even sacrifice and it's willing to cost for that relationship. Then there's the intimate friends who know even more and really everything is laid open and bare before them. Into me, into me. You see, that's kind of what they say intimacy is. There's a shared values. There's a shared oneness. There's a shared interest. There's a shared likes. There's shared worldviews. <coughs> John, could you grab my bottle of water, bring that over, good brother? I'm sorry. John is a pastor at Chapel Hill. We're glad to have Chapel Street Church, glad to have you with us this morning. His granddaughters got baptized this morning. So thank you, good brother. But you know what? So what happens with these intimate friends? They know more than anybody. I'm willing to, whatever it costs me, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna share your burdens, I'm gonna share your troubles. You know what? We, we have become one. And you know what, guys? I want to encourage you with this. We need to begin to define our relationships and understand who is where. And this helps us understand what it's going to take to bring that relationship to the next level. Say, man, I got some good friends, but I want to become close. Well, next, it's going to cost you. <laughs> cost you some time. Doesn't just happen by accident. It's going to cost you Maybe some changing and prioritizing in your schedule. It may cost you some money. And I want to, you know, so in other words, what we find here, a matter of fact, moving an acquaintance to a good friend, sitting having coffee, maybe sharing something about your life with them. My point is this. We, we should define our relationships. We should know who's in what circles. And if you don't have that intimate friend, which your wife or your husband should be, or maybe you've got a good friend like that, um, Proverbs, I forgot to tell you, Proverbs says there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. It's even closer than a brother. This friend is there at that level. And you know what? God can use close friends and good friends to fill that need. It doesn't have to be one. It can be two or three or four. And I, I just want to encourage you. I want to take a minute for this. Hopefully it helps others with friendships and understanding how this thing works. But if you're single, you're widowed, you're divorced, and you're saying, my companionship is not being met, 
God can do it through brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers at, right here at Moraine Valley or in the body of Christ. Let me give you one more word of advice and we'll wrap it up. <coughs> wow. Don't miss out on the abundant life that God has for you by hanging on to your plan. You follow me? God, abundant life is not dependent on being married. Dependent life is dependent upon a relationship with Jesus Christ. And listen to what Romans says. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by reframing, giving a new title, a new lens to where your life is by God's word so that you may prove what the will of God is. And how does he describe God's will? It's good, it's acceptable, it's perfect. God has a plan for your life, whether you're single, widowed, or divorced. <coughs> well, that's a great way to make a point in a sermon. I get all fired up and then cough. But uh, God has a plan for your life that is full of abundance. It's good, it's perfect. It's acceptable to you and to him if you will embrace it. And my encouragement to singles today is, is embrace God's will for your life today. Embrace the gifts that God and the blessings God wants to bring into your life today. That perfect plan that he has for you. Don't miss it because I'm hanging on so tight to this desire and this dream to someday be married and because I'm not married, my life is miserable. But rather I can say, God, look at these new opportunities that you've brought into my life and the opportunity to serve you and maybe even lead somebody to Jesus today or maybe even encourage somebody else or just be a friend or meet a need or just hang out or do whatever. God has got a perfect plan for your life. Don't miss it because you're hanging on so tight to your desire to be married that you, you're blinded to see the beautiful gift that God has in front of you today. Let me say this. Here's a reality for every believer. You will be married someday. Because in Corinthians, listen to what he says. For I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband. You're engaged so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. It's Ephesians 5, isn't it? We're the bride. Guess what? He's at work within us. He's the bridal attendant getting the bride ready for that special day. And, and Paul says, my ministry is to get the church ready because they've been engaged or betrothed to Jesus and want to present them as a pure virgin to him. And then in Revelation 19, what a wonderful picture. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come. We look forward to that day. Right now, we are Jesus' betrothed one. And his bride has made herself ready. Guys, it's amazing truth. It's an amazing time for the church to look forward to, to that time when Jesus 
were with him in the marriage feast of the Lamb. And we, his bride, <laughs> the church, are officially married to Jesus. Now Luke 22 says this, turning to communion now. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. You know what? Jesus said this, I'm not going to eat and drink till I do it with you. And what's happening here? It's Jesus said that he's not going to drink of the fruit of the vine. He's not, and, and what's going to happen here is, is that I believe in Revelation 19 at that wedding feast, as we sit down at the table with Jesus to celebrate as his bride, we'll be eating and drinking. And communion is not only designed to look back at the cross, but it's to look forward to the crown. It's to look forward to that time when we're in the kingdom. It's to look forward to that time when we're going to be sitting with Jesus and eating bread and drinking wine together to celebrate our relationship with him in the kingdom. So this morning as we take communion, I want to encourage you, think about this morning looking forward to that time when you're going to be with him, that time in the kingdom when again you are going to be eating and drinking with him that time he's looking forward to as we look forward to it. So I encourage, you know, what we do with communion, we got these little cups. If you didn't get one on the way in, I'd encourage you to go to the back, grab one, but take some time now just to think about what, what, is, what is God saying to you this morning? We dumped a truck down you. What has he said to you? Speak to him about that as you consider not only the cross of Jesus, but the crown when we're together with him in the kingdom.